We talked at length in Hebrews 12, or used Hebrews 12 as a starting point at least, to, co- to talk about Esau and the blessing he did not receive, how it was stolen from him. Uh, he did not receive the blessing of dominion, that is, of the land and the inheritance that way, nor did he receive the blessing of being fruitful or becoming as the sands of the sea, as was given as a blessing to Israel. But Esau was sort of left out, and rather than turning to God, he became bitter. He didn't like the way things had happened, and indeed, they weren't very good. But on the other hand, he made his own life miserable. He made the life of those who came down from him through the generations miserable, and today his descendants are making life as miserable as they possibly can for Judah and Jacob, or for Jacob, Judah and Israel, both sides. And indeed, we saw that they will in the end time, according to the prophecy that Isaac made to Esau, have dominion at the end, that they will break the yoke of Jacob from off their neck. They will have opportunity here in the end to have dominion, and I believe that that dominion has started with the inception of the nation of Israel, which we probably should call Edom, uh, in 1948. They have had dominion there since. The Sephardic Jews have not been in charge. It's been the Ashkenazi Jews, the Edomites, who have been in charge of that country. Now the test for them is this, will they rule lovingly, gently, godly, or not? Look at the record since 1948 of all the fighting that has gone on in the Middle East and the Jews behind, or the Jews, I say the Edomites, behind most of it between them and the Arabs. They will not rule lovingly and gently. They haven't been to this point, nor will they. And the hatred that they feel for Jacob remains. We reviewed that they have infiltrated the highest levels of the American government, and indeed were there at the beginning of the American government, and saw to it that certain things were put in place, and that more have been put in place since, so that they could ultimately destroy this nation. That has been their goal and their purpose. Since they have been given dominion, and will get greater dominion when this nation falls, and will not do it righteously, God says they will be destroyed. Now, I want to leave that there with that brief review, and go back to Hebrews 12 for a moment. We moved on in verse 14 yesterday, and wound up with the story of Esau. Now, there was another brother involved. This book, for the most part, was written to the newly converted Jews, and in that sense they became spiritual Jews, in the church. This letter was written to the Jews in the church. It was recounted to them the wrong attitude that Esau had had and why he had had all the trouble he has had. Now, what about the troubles of the Jews? 
What about the troubles of Israel as a whole, including both Israel and Judah, all the tribes of Israel? Let's go back above where we started yesterday just for a brief review, and I want to use that as a springboard then to look at some historical events that I think will be eye-opening to us and from a different perspective perhaps than we've ever looked at it before. And that is to go back and see that he refers to chapter 11 where all those faithful first fruits, if you will, those who are mentioned in Hebrews 11 are part of the first fruits, and we are mentioned as receiving the inheritance together with them at the end. And this day of Pentecost, of all days, is about the first fruits. It's about us. Passover covers all mankind, ultimately, and the days of unleavened bread cover all mankind, all 7,000 years of man's experience here on the earth. But Pentecost is specifically about the first fruits. Those will be in the first resurrection. The 144,000 are the first fruits, Revelation 14.4. So if we're among the first fruits, this day, today, is about us. And he was writing to these first fruit Jews of that first century. And he said, look at all these who will be included in the first fruits at the resurrection and see how faithful they were and how we have such a great cloud of witnesses to look to so that we might walk in the way that they walked and do what they did. Looking to Emmanuel, as we know him, the Christ, the Messiah, who came and is now sat at the right hand of God, who is the author and the finisher of our salvation. And then he said, we haven't resisted enough against sin. Verse 4. Then he goes on down to show that God chastens every son whom he loves. If you think you are a son of God and you have not received chastening that seems like it might have come from God, then you are not a son but a bastard. That's the way God looks at it. Now, no chastening for the present seems good and wonderful and happy and joyous, does it? But God says if you don't receive it, because none of us are perfect and therefore we deserve it, if you haven't received it, then he doesn't consider you a son. So, <laughs> this is tough, but if you want to be son, you've got to be paddled. It's the way it's set up, because it's the paddling that gets us over what we are. In one form or another, I say paddling, I'm talking about discipline, whatever form it might take. And the reason he does this, verse 10, last part, is for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. And it has to bring forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them which are exercised or stretched by it. So he then tells us not to let our hands drop in discouragement or our feeble knees be bent, but to make the crooked straight if we're not walking on the right path, to get our feet back in the path and be healed. Now, let's use that as a springboard to consider something throughout the history of Israel that is going to shed a great deal of light on the way things are today in the world, the nation, and the church, and what God expects. I got this angle from a book which is pretty well done. It's called The Struggle for the Birthright, which I read this last week. It's by a Stephen Jones. Uh, he's 
essentially still Protestant, I think, but he, he has the story of Esau and Jacob down pretty well, as did Arthur Kessler, and I've read a lot of books about uh, the 13th tribe and Esau and Jacob and so on. But he puts it in pretty good perspective, and he mentioned something that I had never focused on before, but it is certainly biblical. It's not Protestant by any means. And I use that angle to bring up some scriptures that he mentioned as well as some others and to tie it to the church, which he simply doesn't grasp or understand at all, of course. But back in Deuteronomy 28, we're all very familiar with that being what we call the blessings and cursings chapter, where God laid out all kinds of blessings and said, if you will obey me, I will bless you. And he gave all kinds of blessings that he would give. Then he said, if you will not obey me, I will bring all kinds of curses upon you. And there were some terrible things said indeed that would come if we as a people, or Israel then as a people, would not obey. And there is a scripture in here toward the end of this chapter, I believe, that even talks about it as being in the latter days. If not, it, no, it's in chapter 33, I guess, not 28, that it says that. Anyway, let's drop down to verse 48 and pick this up. <clears throat> well, verse 47, Because you serve not the eternal your God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things, therefore, God knew that they would not, so he there, says, Therefore, shall you serve your enemies, which the eternal shall send against you. God said part of the punishment would be that he would send enemies and then we would have to serve them. Okay? In hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things, and he shall put a yoke of iron upon your neck until he have destroyed you. That is a pretty powerful statement. A yoke of iron. Now, we're not agricultural too much in this country anymore, and even those who might be agriculturally involved are doing it with tractors and combines. We move beyond the horse and the ox. But in times past, when you wanted horses or oxen to work for you, to plow, you put a yoke over their shoulders, you yoked them together so they could pull together, and they were subservient to that yoke. They could not throw it off. Those yokes were generally made of wood. They could be broken, but not likely. Or, in worst-case scenarios, there could be yokes of iron. Yokes of iron were sometimes used on people as slaves. They had a yoke put around their neck. We even do that today with handcuffs or leg cuffs, or, and you've seen pictures of slaves with a chain around their neck and a ball and chain, <laughs> to use the expression that has come down. So God uses the yoking of oxen, the servitude, and the yoke that was put over them as a type or a symbol of what he would do to Israel if Israel did not obey. Okay? Matthew 11, verses 29 and 30. I'll turn back there just for a moment. I'm going to skip 
pretty hurriedly through some of these today because I have a lot of, of uh, area to cover, uh, and I want to finish it. Matthew 11, verse 29. Uh, well, verse 28. Come to me, all you that labor under heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Now, if they're heavily laden, that means they've had a different yoke. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest to your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. We have to promise to be his servants, to be in servitude to him, but he says it's a much lighter yoke than you will have in the world, and what men will put upon you. Now, verses 49 through 57 of Deuteronomy 28 talk about some details of the yoke of iron that God threatened them with if they disobeyed. And it winds up even saying that they will eat their own children. That's how bad it would get. It just goes progressively worse as you read down through there through verse 57. We're having a barbecue. I'm going to kill my third child, you know. I don't mean to be flippant about that, but he said Israel would come to the point they would eat their own children. It would be so bad. Indeed, people did eat their own children in World War II. Some of the Jews are Edomites, whichever they were, in countries like Poland and Czechoslovakia and so on, did go so far as to eat their own children. So it's a prophecy which has actually come to pass at times in the past and will again come to pass in this day and age. Luke 12, verse 48 says, But he to whom much is given, much is required. Israel was a chosen nation, chosen by God to be an example to the rest of the world about how to serve God, how to love God, and ultimately then how to have the right kind of society where there would be peace and joy and happiness, prosperity. All those things that human beings have always longed for would have been part of the blessings. So when God offered them those things which all societies hope for and generally never achieve, and all they had to do was obey him, wow, they thought that's a good deal. All we have to do is keep these commandments. We'll go for that. We want those blessings. Well, with offer of blessing also comes responsibility and culpability. And if God gives you much, he requires much of you. We need to keep that in mind. Now this iron yoke of discipline that we have spoken of so far is the discipline virtually of last resort without having to kill someone. I mean, kill everyone, for that matter. A lot get killed under a yoke of iron. So he was threatening to send them into other nations, to scatter them among the nations, to kill most of them, to bring them nakedness, hunger, and thirst. Now, Jeremiah speaks not of an iron yoke, 
in Jeremiah 23 through 30, but he speaks of a wooden yoke. A wooden yoke is not nearly so heavy, so difficult, so hard to break as a wooden yoke. And God threatened Israel or Judah there with a wooden yoke. In fact, Jeremiah even, as a symbol, wore a wooden yoke around his neck to show Israel what God had planned to do with them. But let's go away from the iron yoke at the moment and consider the wooden yoke first. I want to go to 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17 and verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away into Assyria and placed them in Hala and in Habor by the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. For it, so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the eternal their God, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the statutes, the customs, if you will, the culture of the heathen. The children of Israel did secretly those things that were not right against the eternal their God. I guess they thought they could hide from him one way or another. Uh, verse 18, Therefore the Eternal was very angry with Israel, and removed them out of his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah only. Also Judah kept not the commandments of the Eternal their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel which they made. <clears throat> so Israel was deported. Now a hundred years later, Judah came under the iron yoke of Babylon for 70 years. They were also deported from Jerusalem. Later on, in uh, 70 A.D., after Christ, Rome came against Jerusalem and the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took them into captivity, and hundreds of thousands of people were killed. There again we had the iron yoke. But, and I read one here about that, where they were taken captive. But I want to go back to the book of Judges before this. I kind of got a little bit ahead of myself there, and I didn't intend to. Let's go back to the book of Judges. <clears throat> here in uh, chapter 3. Judges 3, verses 5 through 8. <clears throat> we're going to see a bit of history here. And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and served their gods. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Eternal and forgot the Eternal their God and served Balaam in the groves. Now these were people who had been given promised land and they turned from God. Now they were taken over by an enemy king but they were not deported from their own land. They, the enemy king came in, defeated them, and then let them stay in their homes, let them have their farms, their animals. They just had to pay tax and tribute to the foreign king because he was now over them. So that was then a wooden yoke. They were not all killed, or mostly all killed, taken captive somewhere else, but they were allowed to stay there. So the yoke was not as heavy as an iron yoke. 
Now, where was that verse? God, the anger of the eternal was hot against Israel, in verse 8, and he sold them into the hand of Shushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. The children of Israel served him for eight years. Now notice a critical point here. It wasn't that the king of Mesopotamia was just so strong that he came in and overwhelmed Israel on his own. But it says distinctly, God sold them to the king of Mesopotamia. In other words, it wasn't time and chance somehow that Israel would just happen to be there and this king said, I want them and I'll make them pay taxes. But God worked things out in just such a way that he, and he took credit for it, sold them to the king of Mesopotamia. So it was at God's behest. Now this is a critical point to remember as we go through and look at the history of Israel. Because today people will say, well, just the devil doing this to us. Uh, there's time and chance happening to us, or whatever it might be. So we need to understand that God was behind this captivity. Eight years later, God sent Othniel to deliver them from the yoke. And 40 years of peace then came after the wooden yoke was removed. So eight years of subservience to Mesopotamia was removed. They had 40 years of peace. Now let's go to Judges 3 and verse 12. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Eternal. And the Eternal strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Eternal. So he didn't just send Eglon, but he strengthened Eglon against them, made sure that he was strong enough to do what God wanted done. Now, could Israel afford to take the attitude and approach that we are the chosen nation, we are the people of God, and therefore we can fight against this king, we can come out victorious because God surely is on our side. Well, now maybe God was on their side in one sense. The sense being that he hired somebody to come and take them captive. Now, what should have been their attitude? Why did God do it? He did it because they again had done evil before God. So, why did God send someone to captivate them? So they would repent. So they would quit doing evil and begin to obey God again. That's why this came upon them. Now, this is going to be repeated throughout history. God did it, not the devil. Eglon was not righteous either, was he? No, he was just a Gentile king that God used as his servant to take Israel into captivity to get their attention. Remember Hebrews 12? God chastens every son whom he loves. Israel had gone into sin, so God sent, Othne, uh, sent uh, Eglon to punish them. He sent Eglon, if you will, with the paddle 
described in Hebrews 12. Paddle my people for me. Now, when they repented, God sent Ehud to deliver them. Judges 3, verse 15. When the children of Israel cried to the Eternal, interesting that expression, they cried to the Eternal. Notice it does not say they repented. They just cried to the Eternal. The Eternal raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, a Benjamite, a man left-handed, and by him the children of Israel sent a present to Eglon, the king of Moab, and then they were released. God is starting out, as we might perhaps with a child. When we sin, he sent someone, gave us eight years of paddling, light paddling, a wooden yoke, and then 40 years of peace. But at the same time, the child did not really learn the lesson, didn't really get the right attitude, so you paddle him again. This time the child cries out. Still doesn't really repent, but cries out. And God sent a deliverer. Then you go into Judges 4. They went into captivity to Jabin, king of Canaan. Again, a wooden yoke where they paid tribute, but were not taken out of their land. Judges 6. This goes on and on. <laughs> Judges 6, verse 1. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Eternal. And the Eternal delivered them, in the hand, delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. So these were short captivities. They weren't real severe captivities, but they were designed to hopefully get Israel's attention. The hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, and because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. Then God later sent Gideon to relieve them, to remove that yoke. And Gideon started out with a huge army, and God kept paring it down, paring it down, finally got it to 300 men. He wanted them to see that not only he had punished them, but also that he, not a great army, could also deliver them. So the point was, I'm going to send a very small force of men, and through miracles, God will save you from this captivity. Interesting how he begins to work and work and work toward hopefully getting them in the right attitude. Now, before Gideon came to deliver them, God did what? This time he sent a prophet. Hadn't done that before. He sent a prophet to them to give them a history lesson. They say, now, wait a minute now. Remember Ehud? <laughs> Do you remember the king of the Mesopotamian of the whoever else who came against you? And how you went into servitude, and then how you were delivered, and how you went into servitude, and how you were delivered? That's what a prophet is supposed to do to tell them, because you broke God's laws and did not serve him, this happened. Now it's about, it's happened again. God's going to deliver you again. Wow, good news. But you see, this is the first sign of God showing any reluctance to forgive them and to deliver them. Up to this point, they cried out, God sent deliverance. This time... 
It's a process more. This time, all right, I'll send a prophet. He'll tell you what you've done wrong. Do you get it yet? Here's what you did wrong. Here's why this has all happened. Now God's going to deliver you again. Do you think you can straighten up? I sound like I'm talking to one of my kids. Well, God was talking to his children Israel. Am I going to have to keep this up, or are you going to kind of straighten your attitude up and do what you're supposed to do? God might have been getting a little frustrated with them by then, reckon? You know, your kid keeps doing the same thing over and over. You, pretty soon you get a level of frustration, don't you? So you increase the paddling, or you increase the restrictions, or you increase the pressure, however you need to do it. It's exactly the way God works. It's the way I work. It's the way you work with yours. Judges 10. Uh, after Abimelech, Abimelech arose to defend Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo. <laughs> There's really some names in the Bible, isn't there? You Dodo. A man of Issachar, and he dwelt in Shamir, in Mount Ephraim, and so on. But here in this chapter, I'm not going to take the time to go through it all. Here they were given a wooden, an iron... <laughs> I'm asleep too. Can't talk. They were given again a wooden yoke under the Ammonites. And that was in chapter 5, I guess it was. And then in chapter 6, to the Philistines. Judges 10, verse 10. The children of Israel cried to the Eternal, saying, We have sinned against you, both because we have forsaken our God and also served Balaam. At least now they were beginning to say when they cried out, We did sin. That is the beginning of repentance. When you recognize sin, then you have opportunity perhaps to overcome sin. Until you accept that you are a sinner and have sinned, you have no chance of overcoming. So maybe here they're learning a little bit slowly. So at least they confessed their sin. Verse 11. And the Eternal said to the children of Israel, Did not I deliver you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, the children of Ammon, and from the Philistines, the Zidonians, the Amalekites? And it goes on and on. Yet you've forsaken me. He's going to hold their feet to the fire a little bit here. And they confessed, and then were delivered by Jephthah. Then Judges 13. Is this getting boring already? <laughs> it's, it's, it's repetitive. This keeps going on and on. Chapter 13, uh, the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the eternal. God began to feel like he was a broken record, I suppose. The eternal delivered them in the hand of the Philistines 40 years. So it's still a wooden yoke. They were still allowed to live in their land, but this time it was a longer sentence. 40 years they had to be under the Philistines. Then God raised up Samson. He became a hero to Israel, and yet Samson was unable to deliver them. So before, every time God had sent someone, he was able to deliver them. This time, Samson was not able to. They wound up putting Samson's eye, cutting his hair off, uh, putting his eyes out, and, making, and putting him under a yoke, and turning the wheel to grind the corn like an ox. 
God drove that lesson home through Samson, their hero who had a yoke put on him. Now ultimately he pulled down the Philistine ungodly temple and what was it, 20,000 Philistines, I haven't read the story in a long time, but a lot of them, I think it was 20,000, died with him. But their hero died as well. Now at the same time, Eli was the priest. If you'll remember the story, Eli had two sons, and they were evil sons. So Samson wasn't able to make the deliverance, so these two sons came up with an idea. They said, let's parade out the Ark of the Covenant and take it into the battle against the Philistines. In other words, let's use God on them. Same old attitude. We're the chosen people. God must be on our side, so we'll take the Ark of the Covenant, and if we have the Ark of the Covenant there, then God will have to deliver us. In other words, they're trying to blackmail God, essentially, by taking the Ark of the Covenant. Well, God doesn't blackmail very easily. So the Philistines not only defeated the armies of Israel, but they also took the Ark of the Covenant and kept it for seven months. Now, God had told them, let's, let's look real quickly at Numbers 10.35, and they must have remembered this. Numbers 10, verse 35. If I can get back there. And it came to pass when the ark set forward that Moses said, Rise up, Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let them that hate you flee before you. So in righteousness before... Moses had used the Ark of the Covenant, so these evil sons of, of Eli said, hey, that worked, let's do that again. But they were not righteous, and they were using God or trying to use him. There is a difference in that kind of manipulation and righteously going forward and then God backing you up. You see, if you expect God to back you up, you'd better be walking the direction God wants you to walk, Right? And that's the hard part. They were unwilling to obey God. They were unwilling to repent and change and turn to God, but they wanted to use the instruments of God, in this case the ark, to manipulate their freedom. Didn't happen. They were using God to their advantage. You can read more of that in 1 Samuel 4 verses 2 through 4. I won't go there. Now let's go to Exodus 23. Exodus 23. And here I want verse 22. But if you shall indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. God had told Israel, if you will obey me, I will be the enemy of your enemies. In this case, they had disobeyed God, and he had become their enemy, if you believe that. God had become, in that sense, in type at least, the enemy of Israel by sending unrighteous Gentile kingdoms 
to take them into captivity. I mean, isn't that what your enemy does? Your enemy tries to destroy you. So God was the one who was backing the destroyers. If you wanted to put money on somebody, put money on the Gentile kings because God was backing them, not Israel, if you will. Isaiah 63, verse 10. But they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore he was turned to be their enemy, and he fought against them. Here are the chosen people of God through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God states clearly that he was their enemy and fought against them. We need to be careful, don't we? in our analysis of what is going on in the world, in the nation, in the church, and in our very own lives. Lest we be found to be fighting God, as another scripture says, because he will turn and fight his own people if they will not obey him. So God is either for us or against us, and it's up to us whether God will be our enemy or be our Savior. That's simple. So the Philistines defeated Israel. They took the ark. They killed the priests. There's a reference to that in Psalm 78, 60. And they destroyed the city of Shiloh where the ark had been. Now, 1 Samuel 6, I'm not going to turn there for sake of time. The Philistines kept the ark for seven months. They couldn't go to Shiloh because it had been destroyed. So they kept it at Kirjath-Jerim for about 20 years after it was returned from the Philistines, after they had it seven months, Jerusalem kept it at Kirjath, Jerem, 1 Samuel 7, 2. So when the ark was then returned, I'll go to 1 Samuel, well, I will go to 1 Samuel. There's a couple of references here I'd like to, to get. 1 Samuel 7. I know I'm going through a lot of scriptures and hitting these, but I want to show a pattern here. 1 Samuel 7, 3-6. And Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you do return to the eternal with your whole heart, with all your hearts. How many scriptures have we seen in Jeremiah and other places where in the end time God says, Turn to me with your whole heart? That's all he's ever been after. Then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts to the Eternal, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth, and serve the Eternal only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you to the Eternal. They gathered together to Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said, There we have sinned against the Eternal. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. So they prayed, they fasted, poured out an offering to God, and they admitted their sin. Okay? Then 1 Samuel 7, verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued, and they came no more into the coast of Israel, and the hand of the Eternal was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So when they came, fasted, prayed, turned to God with all their heart, then God quit being their enemy and became the enemies of 
the Philistines, and God destroyed the Philistines before them. And so ended the wooden yoke of that period in Israel's history. But see how they went. Sin, repentance, sin, repentance, or partial repentance, and then later repentance, and God would deliver that wooden yoke from off their neck. So he started out when Israel was fairly young by giving them fairly light punishment and then backing off, seeing how they did, giving them light punishment again. Now it is important that we understand a principle here, and that is that from God's perspective, we do not accept or have freedom as a right. We grew up in America, didn't we? And we look upon freedom as an unalienable right that we have. That's what we have been taught in school and in class and by our society and culture around us. Most of the earth does not have, to any extent, the amount of freedoms that Americans heretofore have had. Ours are quickly vanishing and being taken away uh, by virtue of things that are going on in our government today. But we need to understand that from God's perspective, we do not have a right to freedom. He will grant us freedom and peace if we obey Him. But if we disobey and go into sin, then God removes our freedom. It's always been that way. So it is a thing that God grants. It is a privilege. And that's the way he set the thing up. If we do not do what we are supposed to do, the privilege is removed. That's what we've seen up to this point. Now since the time that Joshua led these people into the promised land, crossing the River Jordan, out of 300 years of history, which we've essentially gone through to this point already, they had been in captivity roughly a third of the time, about 100 years. First 300 years in the Promised Land, they were in captivity, 100 of it, off and on, back and forth. Because they had told God before they ever crossed the Jordan, they would go by His ways. He said, I'll protect you. What did they do? They went. In, he, he backed the Jordan River up during the flood stage in the spring and let them walk across on dry land as he had the Red Sea. Then without, if you will, firing a shot, they walked around Jericho, not saying a word, seven days, and then with a shout and the blast of a trumpet, the wall simply fell down. That's the way God started out. That was his original intent, that he would not only be their God, but he would fight their battles for them. They suffered no losses there, at least initially, until Achan stole something and then 36 people were killed. But that was because a man disobeyed. But up to that point, of course this is quite a short history at that point, crossed the river and then went immediately to Jericho and God was on their side all the way until sin entered. 
And 36 men had to die just simply because of Achan, and then Achan's family, of course. Now, what did Israel do next? Surely, by now, they had learned their lesson. They'd been paddled enough that they wouldn't disobey God anymore, and anything God said, yes, sir, yes, sir, we'll do it. Whatever you say, Dad, we'll do it. Okay? What did they say? Well, you know, this God, we, we've heard that story about Sinai, you know, and all that thunder and lightning, and, and if a beast even came, he was fried on the spot, died, and if a man went nearby, he was killed as well. Probably volcanic action. And this God, boy, every time, we, every time we do anything wrong, he doesn't treat us like adults, he just treats us like a bunch of brats. And he sends us into captivity. Again, you know, he's pretty strict. He's too strict for us. You know what we need? We need a king. A king is a man. A king has his own problems. A king would understand. A king would be lenient because he'll understand how we are. Sure. God says, all right, you don't want me to rule you? I'll give you a king. Guess what, though? That king is going to be more oppressive. He's going to be harder on you. He's going to paddle you more. He's going to tax you more than I have. And you're going to wish you hadn't done this, Israel. Ah, oh, we want a king. It's already decided. So what happened? God gave them a king. Gave them the tallest man around, handsome, good-looking man. They thought, ah, this will be a wonderful king for us. His name was Saul. You know the story. Saul finally turned to demonism, had all kinds of problems, tried to kill David, whom God had anointed to replace him, and so on. See, they didn't understand there is no peace and there is no freedom apart from the way of God from the laws of God. If we keep the laws of God, God will grant peace because his laws produce peace. You break those laws and you have all kinds of problems and difficulties in the society. They didn't recognize that. So they got a king. Now they were oppressed not by foreign kings, they were oppressed by their own king. All right? There's kind of the story of Israel what they did, what happened to them. I'm not going to go into all about the kings, but just a brief summary of what happened thereafter. You'd have a good king, bad king, good king, bad king. Two bad kings in a row. You know, it went on and on. And the kings of Israel were a sad, sad story for the most part. And when there was repentance and the king would say, all right, we need to obey God, he would get partial results for a little while then he'd be replaced by a truly evil king. So you can go through the whole story of the kings just like we did the story of the foreign kings who had come in. It didn't get any better for Israel. All right, let's turn to Judah. Moving on from that. Jeremiah 23 through 30. Uh, off and on here, Jeremiah speaks of a wooden yoke. 
and that they would remain under it, but if they disobeyed, they would then put, be put under the iron yoke of Babylon. Let's pick it up in Jeremiah 27, uh, here in verse 5. I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are upon the ground, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and have given it to whom it seemed fit or meet to me. And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field have I given him also to serve him. And all nations shall serve him, and his son, and his son's son, until the very time of his land come, and then many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of him. Then he goes on to say that whoever will not serve the same Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will not put their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation will I punish, says the Eternal, with the sword, famine, and with pestilence, until I have consumed them by his hand. Now here was a Gentile king who would be one of the four great empires that would rule the earth, the Babylonian kingdom first. And God said, all nations are to serve my servant Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar never obeyed God. Nebuchadnezzar was never converted, never circumcised, never part of Israel in any way. But he was God's servant. In that, God was going to use him to wield the paddle on Judah. Not Israel now, but Judah. Verse 11. But the nations that bring their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him... Those will I let remain still in their own land, says the Eternal, and they shall till it and dwell therein. So, Jeremiah spoke of a wooden yoke. And here, God says, if you will serve King Nebuchadnezzar, this is the yoke you'll have. You'll have the one that allows you to stay in your own land, till your own farms. You'll be under tribute to him, but you come under subjection to him. This included Judah. Jeremiah 28. Here we have the story of Hananiah. And he didn't like what Jeremiah was saying because Jeremiah said, you must serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Well, Hananiah didn't like that. These are God's chosen people. We're the Jews. We shouldn't have to serve a Gentile king 70 years. You know, standing in the back row when Jeremiah's preaching, saying, ah, that's not the way it's going to be. Won't be that way. What did, what did Hananiah prophesy? He says, thus speaks the eternal of hosts, the God of Israel. Now, he's going out on a limb here. God hadn't told him to say this, but he decided he'd say it. Better be careful what you decide to say. He says, Thus speaks the eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. This was wishful thinking. Within two full years will I bring again into this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried them to Babylon. And I will bring again to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, with all the captives of Judah that went into Babylon, says the eternal, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Now here is an example of someone 
You know, God talks about those prophets who prophesied, but God said, I didn't send them. They ran, but I didn't send them. Here's one that said, I think I have inspiration from God. Now, God didn't speak to him, didn't give him this message, but he analyzed the situation and concluded that the only answer to this could be that God would deliver them and do it within two years. Because surely God would not leave them in captivity 70 years. It's human reasoning. We see a lot of that in the church today where someone stands up and says, hey, this is the way it's going to be. And they didn't receive that from God. It's just a figment of their imagination. We must be careful. Then the prophet Jeremiah said to the prophet Hananiah, in the presence of the priests and in the presence of all the people that stood in the house of the Eternal, even the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen, the Lord do so. The Lord perform your words which you prophesied to bring again the vessels of the Lord's house. Do you think this is going to work? Go for it. Then he goes on to show that it wasn't going to happen. Verse 15 shows that. Then said the prophet Jeremiah to Hananiah the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, the Eternal has not sent you, but you make this people to trust and alive. Therefore thus says the Eternal, Behold, I will cast you from off the face of the earth. This year you shall die, because you have taught rebellion against the Eternal. So Hananiah the prophet died the same year in the seventh month. Now, how did Hananiah preach rebellion? All he did was say, God is going to deliver you out of this captivity in two years. How is that rebellion? Here's how. God had decreed, you will be in captivity 70 years. Hananiah did not like that. He rebelled and recoiled against the very idea and said, this will not be. And he taught the people this will not be a long captivity. Jeremiah goes on later on to tell them, you're going to be there 70 years, go ahead, build houses, buy land, plant vineyards, whatever. You're going to be there a long time. But Hananiah was going against that advice which Jeremiah had given. What Hananiah was doing was preaching rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar. Remember when God, when all the people came against Samuel? 1 Samuel 8, 7, I think it is. And God said, don't worry, Samuel. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. So in rejecting Jeremiah, they rejected God. In accepting Hananiah's call for rebellion against the king of Babylon, they were rejecting God. God did not intend them to fight Nebuchadnezzar. He said, he's my servant, serve him. Be under his yoke. Where have you ever heard that preached? We are not supposed to rebel under what God puts us through. When he chastens us, we are supposed to accept it and spend our time repenting, not rebelling against whom God sent to spank us. The whole point of everything is to repent, always has been, turn to God with your whole heart, never changes. 
Never has, never will. Now let's look a little more about the history of the Jews and see why God kept putting it on them. Jeremiah 28, 10 through 11. Then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke from off the prophet Jeremiah's neck and broke it. I, I skipped over that. Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Eternal, Even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all nations within the space of two years old. Jeremiah didn't even argue with him. He just went his way. So not only did he reject and rebel against God's pronouncement, but he actually broke the yoke off of Jeremiah's neck, which God had put there as a type that this would happen. Well, Hananiah really stuck his neck out here, and he died the seventh month of that year. Well, Hananiah thought God was on their side. After all, they were the Jews. God must be on our side. So we can break this. We can overcome this. We can get away from Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? Jeremiah 2, verse 35. Yet you say, because I am innocent, surely his anger will turn from me. Behold, I will plead with you, because you say, I have not sinned. Does that remind you of most of the church of God today? Which says, hey, we're the Philadelphians. We haven't sinned. There's nothing bad said about the Philadelphians. And since we're them, we're okay. We've not sinned. God must be on our side. We must be able to go on doing what we've been doing, and everything will be okay and will work out just fine because we're God's chosen Philadelphians. Do you see anything there that resembles the attitude of these Jews? They didn't think they were in rebellion. They kept the forms and the rituals. Church today is stuck to the feast, stuck to the Sabbath. Jeremiah 7, verse 4. We cry this today in the church. Trust you not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. We hide behind the church. That's what happens. We haven't sinned. We're Philadelphians. We're in the temple of the Lord. So we must be okay. We're keeping the feast and the holy days. About all they do do. Do-do and dodo, I guess. Some of the Jews believed Jeremiah and accepted the wooden yoke. They were allowed to stay in their land. The disobedient were removed to Babylon, Jeremiah 25, verse 11. So, some actually followed the false prophet Hananiah, who said, God will surely deliver us within two years. They believed his theology of rebellion, his religious teaching of rebellion. Does God anywhere teach Rebellion to his people? Find me a place, quick. That'll wake you up. Thumb through the Bible while I talk here and find a place where God teaches rebellion. He even taught against rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar. 
because he said, if you rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, you're rebelling against me. Jeremiah 28, verse 12. Then came the word of the Eternal to Jeremiah the prophet, uh, after he had broken the yoke. He said, Go tell Hananiah, you've broken the yokes of wood, but you shall make for them yokes of iron. So God says, if you're going to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, turn in your wooden yokes, you're going to Babylon, we're going to fit you with a yoke of iron. Just bottom line. You see, we have to think, and we have to recognize the judgments of God, lest leaders take us to destruction. We are in a position today in the church where most of the church leaders are saying, I'm a Philadelphian, you're Philadelphians, everything's going to be okay. And even through all this scattering, nearly all organizations say that. And they are giving a false prophecy to the people that will lead to their destruction. The big organizations are doing it of the church, the biggest splinters. I think perhaps splinter is a good analogy. Splinters get under your skin and they fester and create poison. And they have to be removed. Now, what does God say? He shows the scattering. He shows in Lamentations, among many other places you and I have looked at, that says, I have done this. I take credit. I did it. Just as he took credit for doing it to ancient Israel, as we read in the book of Judges. And fast forward to Zechariah 11, which is still down the road a bit from us. And he says, I'm going to take down three big trees, three ministries within a month because they are teaching rebellion. God is behind the scattering of the church. The devil didn't do it, Herbert Armstrong didn't do it, and Joe Koch didn't do it. God did it because of our lackadaisical, half-hearted efforts to serve God. What this man brings out here with this wooden and iron yoke really is what we have been seeing and preaching all along. It's just a different perspective on the exact same story. Jeremiah 24 talks about the good figs and the bad figs. Some of the people of Israel, or Judah in this case, were good figs who were willing to obey, and then you had evil figs. He said even the good figs would be taken into captivity, and there they would repent, and this captivity was for their good, verse 5, end of it. And in the end of verse 7 it says, For they shall return to me with their whole heart. And this is the good pigs who had sinned. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. All the virgins slumbered and slept. We've all been asleep. We've all sinned, brethren, Philadelphia included, whoever that may be. And it does tell Philadelphia, even though it doesn't enumerate her sins, 
that they must also overcome if they're to be in the kingdom of God. Well, if they got to overcome, there must be something wrong with them. How can someone say, I'm a Philadelphian, therefore I'm okay, God doesn't say anything bad about me, I got it made. When God says, if you overcome, you will be in my kingdom. How did they overlook that? Even if we were to declare today, like everyone else seems to do, that we are the Philadelphians, then bottom line is, even then, we would still have to overcome. Weakness, sin, the flesh, everything that makes up a human being. So even being a Philadelphian doesn't let you off the hook, even though you reach up and say, I'm off the hook. No one is off the hook. Now the bad pigs here were so bad, they were just thrown out. They were that rotten. But the good pigs had to repent. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, to all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused, <laughs> he makes it plain, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, build you houses and dwell in them and plant gardens and eat the fruit of them, take wives, beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. <coughs> and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captives and pray to the Eternal for that city, for in the peace thereof shall you have peace. So he doesn't say rebel against your captors. He says go there, establish homes, have children, and pray for that city that it have peace, that you might have peace. Now is that what the Jews tended to do? No. 1 Peter 2.18, he tells us to submit to the powers that be. Romans 13.1, submit to the authority that is over you. Titus 3.1, same thing. I'm not going to those, I'm about to run out of time already. The apostles didn't fight going to prison, did they? Did they fight being stoned? No. Did they get away if they could? Sometimes. But they did not rebel against the governments that were there with them, did they? They recognized, they had enough spiritual savvy to get the point that they were there to overcome, to grow, to serve God, and that Christ did not come to fight. He came to bring peace and to teach turning the other cheek, not rebelling when God sends someone to punish you. That's why the Jews would not accept Christ. One of the main reasons. They wanted a knight in shining armor. They wanted somebody coming with a sword. They wanted a hero to smite and kill all their enemies. That was their attitude, and it is an ungodly attitude. Destroy all our enemies. We hate them. They've mistreated us. Justify us. Kill them all. That has been the cry of Judah and Israel throughout history. God save us by killing everybody that hates us. It's ungodly. It doesn't work.
Now that 70 years in Jeremiah was a type of today. God gave us freedom from the iron. And we're still under captivity. Consider Daniel 2. God told them, I'm not going there for sake of time, that there will be four world-ruling empires, the Babylonian, the Persian, the Greek, and the Roman. And that once they went into captivity, they would wind up being under these people. So they were in an iron yoke taken out of their country by Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. They rebelled against that. They were there for 70 years. Persian Empire came in and they were given some respite. The iron yoke was taken off. Wooden yoke was still on them though, wasn't it? They were allowed to go back to Jerusalem, build the wall, build the city, build the temple, but they were still subservient to Cyrus. So that yoke was not taken off. Then the Persian Empire fell to the Greek Empire. And then the Greek Empire came apart when uh, Alexander the Great died, divided it into four parts with his generals. And then because one of them was so evil, the king of Syria in this case, God seemed to remove the entire yoke for about a hundred years. But Israel continued to sin. Now he tells us in Daniel that those four world-ruling empires would dominate down to the end until the kingdom of God would come and the kingdom of stone would be set up, Christ being the chief corner stone, and that the saints would then take the kingdom. But until then, that's in Daniel 7.22, until then, from the time the Romans took over and put them under the yoke, we have been under yoke ever since. The Roman Empire dominated. The Jews decided that they did not want to live under the yoke of Rome, so they rebelled. 66 to 73 AD, there was a great rebellion against the Roman Empire. The Romans came in and crushed Judea. They killed over a million people destroyed the temple. Only a few of the true church fled to Pella and got out of that. So the iron hand came down sharply. Now you had some zealots who decided to settle in Masada, way up on the hill. And they're looked upon in Jewish history as heroes who fought against Rome, who held out as the last bastion of strength against Rome. And then Rome had to build a rampart all the way up the mountain. They got there at Passover time. And those people in Masada then drank their Kool-Aid that night. They died, all of them, so they wouldn't be taken by the Romans. There was the last final act of desperate rebellion against Rome. They were not heroes. They were rebelling against God. God had decreed that they should live under Roman domination because of their sins. And Christ told them that as well. He said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Don't take it back. Give your taxes. Pay homage to Caesar. 
turn the other cheek. If a Roman soldier come wants your cloak, take, give him your coat also. He taught subservience to God's servants, the Romans. Can we see that? I, we just went around a blind corner there. Hey, whoa! Right? And they died. Now God has left that Roman Empire intact from that time forward through the Middle Ages. The world was dominated by Rome. Rome finally fell, but the Roman Catholics dominated. And then the Protestant Catholics dominated. Or the Protestants who came out from Catholicism, but didn't change much. God fought for Rome. God became the enemy of Israel. God destroyed Israel through the Romans because of disobedience. John 5. Here I want verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. Moses was their accuser. Moses was against their attitude of rebellion. Moses trusted God to deliver them at the Red Sea. Everything Moses wrote in Deuteronomy was against their bitter, rebellious attitude against their enemies. You had the Bar Kokhba rebellion, 132-135. He was going to be their Messiah, their leader. He got killed. Yet today the Jews complain everybody's against us. Well, they're still under the yoke. God has not removed it. Judah has been scattered among the nations until this 20th century. The iron yoke is still there. Don't have a homeland. They had that hope that Israel was, but it was taken over by the Edomites instead of them. Zionism is the takeover of Jerusalem in an attempt to throw off this long scattering and the yoke of iron, the yoke of iron that God had put on them. But it's not going to work. They're still under it. Everyone hates the Jews. Now, it explains why Israel has been dominated by Rome, the Catholics, and the Protestants ever since, down to this day. Maybe we've had trouble understanding how this is Israel, but how could we have a Washington, D.C. that is laid out in Masonic fashion and is pagan to the core, and that our first president was a Freemason, and on and on and on about the paganism that is in Washington. The answer to this is that even though Israel was God's chosen people, when this nation was founded, when God removed the yoke of iron and allowed us to begin to gather in America and in Canada, that was the removal of the iron yoke. But he still left a wooden yoke on us, that is, a Babylonian government which created a shadow government which is not really the government of Israel but a government of Babylonians who rule Israel. So we are still under the yoke of Babylon or of Rome, however you want to put it, or both, the Gentile kings. And we will not receive the kingdom and have the yoke removed until 
the kingdom of stone through Christ comes. That is why, right now, in this country, the yoke is getting tighter and tighter and tighter. They're removing our freedoms one and two and three at a time through homeland security and various other ways until our freedom will be gone. And if we do not repent in the near future, God is going to impose again the iron yoke on this country. The wooden yoke will be removed of our present Babylonian government and we will come under the iron yoke of the new Babylon, the new beast, the end time beast. And we will be taken into captivity and we will be scattered and we will die of famine and pestilence and disease and die under the iron yoke. And what does God say for us to do then? To run in and get our guns and fight them when they come? No! God says, repent! It's always been that way. Turn to God with your whole heart and I will deliver you. Now the church was scattered. It came under the iron yoke first, didn't it? church has been scattered to the winds. We are supposed to be repenting now and turning to God with our whole heart, lest we spiritually die and miss out on our crown. Those people who go under the physical iron yoke when this nation is taken captive very shortly now are called upon to repent. And in fact, God says in Zechariah, what is it, about 12, somewhere in there, 10 or 12, that about a third of them will repent during that tribulation. That is his desire and his hope. Now, God tells the church at this juncture, Isaiah 52, just before the two witnesses come on the scene, Isaiah 52, wake up, sit up, break the yoke off your neck. How? By, gar by donning your garments of righteousness, by repenting, by turning to God and away from Babylon. It's the same story. The message to you and to me is repent now. Break that yoke of sin off our necks. Break away from Babylon through repentance. Not by destroying Babylon, but by not letting them dominate your thoughts, your actions, and everything you do. Get away from it. Go out in the wilderness, go away from Babylon, but go there. And I will deliver you there. We have a calling we have a direct instruction from God to come where we came and to continue getting Babylon out of our lives. We have a calling. We have a warning. We have instruction from God to do what we're doing. Now we need to see it through. We need to be sure we turn with our whole heart to our God and He will save us. He's promised that if we will repent and overcome, 
we will be accounted worthy to escape all these things that are coming. There is a long history of wooden and iron yokes. We in America have been under wooden. We in the church have now come under the iron. The nation is about to come under the iron. And God said, sit up and break it and don't let them walk on you anymore. Walk my way. Put on your garments of righteousness. That's the calling we have been given. I wanted to get more into the Spirit of God, this being Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming on Pentecost, but I needed this preparation first, so that has to wait.